You can be seated. Good morning, Mars Hill. How are you? Good. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's who you are. And this morning, let's hear from the word of God, Exodus 21, 33 through 22. Or, sorry, that would be going backwards. Exodus chapter 21, verse 33, 2 Exodus chapter 22, verse 15. And while you're turning um, your scriptures there, I just wanted to uh, reiterate an invitation to join us this Tuesday night for Ecclesia Academy. One of my joys that I get to do here as a pastor is to oversee that and to teach in that. Uh, Ecclesia Academy, for those that are unfamiliar with it, uh, is really what the name is trying to capture. Ecclesia is Latin for church, and academy is English for academy. And what we're trying to do there is to bridge the gap between the church and the academy. Seminaries, institutions of higher Christian education, those types of things. A lot of us that are pastors and elders on the staff have had the opportunity to be blessed for a season of life, um, studying in depth theology and scripture and those types of things. And we thought, well, why don't we bring some of that here in a way that is accessible and practical for the local church? So we're going to begin this year's curriculum starting on Tuesday from 6.30 to 8. I'll be teaching in what would be called normally systematic theology, but that sounds scary, so we're going to call it confessions. So this is the theology that we confess as believers based roughly on the Apostles' Creed. We're going to ask questions like big ones. Who is God? What is he like? Um, what does he do? We're going to talk about Christology, the person and work of Christ, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology. What is the church? What's it supposed to do? These are really big questions, but we go into really great detail. Uh, and we're going to ask tough questions, questions maybe you've pondered uh, once in a while, like, is Mary really the mother of God? What do we do with the relationship between human agency and God's sovereignty? Uh, how are things going to end? So come join us Tuesday, 6.30 to uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, you can register at pomh.org. Um, the registration fee for this class is $30. That gets you the two books we're going to be going through, Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity and Herman Bavinck's Wonderful Works of God. And you also get swag, so of course... So one of them is a coffee mug. I'll just tell you straight up, we're going to have coffee. It is 6.30 to 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night. All right. Exodus chapter 21, verses 33, and chapter 22 through verses 15. In the past few weeks, we've been looking and exploring at how God has delivered his law to his people. This is a code of ideals that communicates something about God's character and his expectation of Israel. But we're starting to notice that this code of morality is so high that Israel cannot achieve it. In fact, we saw a little bit of a hint that they recognized they couldn't approach God's holiness. This is why earlier, a few weeks ago, we saw Israel, when God descends, they're standing far off. And they say, we're so glad that God has redeemed us from Egypt, but we don't want to go anywhere near him because he is holy and we are sinful. So let's do this. Moses, how about you go talk to him? And so Moses mediates between the people of Israel who are standing far off and God who is drawing near in a type or foreshadowing of Christ. We also saw a kind of uh, a type or foreshadowing of what Christ would do in his work. So we saw what's going to happen when Israel breaks the law. What's going to happen when they sin and they fall short of God's glory and his covenant? Well, God's going to make a way that there's going to be an altar and that they can sacrifice animals and that somehow mysteriously through this death, God is going to bring about life. And so that also 
If you're a Christian, rings a bell through the death of Christ, brings about eternal life. So we're seeing these hints of the gospel even as early as the book of Exodus, and rightly so. This week, we're going to continue to see whispers of Christ, whispers of his gospel in the law, but perhaps not in a way that's very easily discernible. If you've already looked ahead, you got bored with whatever I was talking about a few moments ago, and you were reading, you're like, what in the world? Why are we even reading this passage, these laws of restitution? about oxes falling into pits and fields catching on fire. Like, what does this have to do with Jesus? But I think the longer we linger, and this was the case with me, the longer we linger in this text, the more it becomes obvious that the seemingly obscure rules of Christ are actually pointing us to the rule of Christ over all things to come. Because God's not simply revealing something about himself in these laws, but he's also preparing the hearts and preparing the minds of Israel and the world to receive his ultimate revelation of himself, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading um, verses 34 through, or, sorry, 33 through 34 in chapter 21. When a man opens a pit, and when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. I remember the first time a man's donkey fell into my pit. <laughs> I was really proud of the pit. It would one day become a pool, we hoped, but I left it open overnight, and when I took my dog out in the morning to go to the bathroom, I could hear it crying. I knew what had happened, so I knew my neighbor would be very angry with me, which he was, and you can imagine I had to make restitution. Okay. You see where I'm going with this. What does this text have to do with anything? We're living in the 21st century. Nobody owns oxes anymore. If you do, you're an owner of a zoo and you're doing it for different reasons than they would. It seems like this is a very unrelatable text to us. And when critics of the Bible, looking at it from a 21st century, very proudful lens, go, see, this is what we're talking about. It's old, outdated. What does it have to say for us today? Uh, here's some evidence. But I hope you'll see that the more we read it, that law in specific, and the other laws that are coming, you're going to realize that there is a timeless principle here that's pointing us forward towards something. Not only is it itself a principle that we can apply to our lives today, but it's pointing us forward to a principle, uh, to something coming. That principle, it is restoration. It is restitution. That's one of the themes we're going to see today. Restoration, restitution, making things right. And what is it pointing us forward to, though? I think there's two questions we have to ask of the text to be able to see that. First, how is this text pointing us to justice? If there's restitution, then of course there needs to be justice. So how is this pointing us towards great justice? And second, what is it that's bringing injustice? So how is it that we're being pointed towards justice and what is it that we're, that's bringing injustice? So. When a man opens a pit and he doesn't cover it and the ox falls in, he has to make restoration. How is that pointing us to Christ? So the way I want to do this is maybe a little bit different than we normally do. We're going to go through line by line like we do. I'm going to make some comments on it. But I want to look at the text from the 30,000-foot view um, rather than go into the minutiae and the detail. And in so doing, we're going to be able to see this general principle of justice and the consequences and what God's doing about it. 
So with this first law in 33 through 34, the one about the pit going into the, or the, the animal going into the pit, in other words, what the law is trying to communicate here is that the owner of the pit has to pay if it's his fault that an animal dies. And just to like put the weight of the seriousness on that, because somebody asked me in between services, like, who cares if the guy's donkey fa falls into the to the pit, right? Um, what what does it matter? If my donkey fell into a pit today, my wife would be like, finally, the, the donkey's gone, and she would low key thank the neighbor for his irresponsible pit building, right? Um, well, pits back in the day were used for storage, cold storage in the winter, dry storage during the winter, or the, the summer. And so animals would be drawn to it, right? And if they're looking over and they fall in, it's not just that your pet dog fell in and it's dead and you're sad because they're gone. That donkey or that ox was your tractor. It was your car. So to make it a little bit more serious, uh, let's say you walk out and your neighbor has like flipped your car over into a river. Or if, you, if, you, um, if you're like a graphic designer and you discover that your neighbor unintentionally has deleted all of your life's works and there's no longer any copies of it. Okay, that's how serious this is. That's why it's not just, oh no, Fluffy the donkey's gone, right? No, this is, I will not be able to feed my family this winter. We may starve to death. That's how serious this is, okay? So God doesn't like that. He wants to make things right which means God cares about making things right even when it's accidentally your fault. You didn't want the animal to fall into the pit. It accidentally did. Verses 35 to 36. When one man's ox butts another and so that it dies, then he shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, in other words, it's violent, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. In other words, if your animal kills your neighbor's animal, you have to pay for what it's worth, which means that God cares about making things right even when it's not your fault. Chapter 22, verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. In other words, if you steal and get caught, you have to pay back fivefold or fourfold. That, that doesn't seem like an important detail, but it's going to be very important to us later. Remember that. If you're in a note-taking, this law of theft requires at least fourfold restitution. Theft requires at least fourfold restitution. You'll hear that again later. This means that God cares about making things right even when it's intentionally your fault. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and then ask the question like, Fourfold, fivefold, that seems pretty steep, doesn't it? Um, why don't you just replace one sheep for one sheep and one ox for one ox? Isn't God being a little heavy handed and forcing someone to pay four or fivefold the amount of damages owed? This may sound harsh, but it's actually radically merciful when you compare it to other ancient Near Eastern cultures that were living around Israel at the time. So, for example, the, the legal heritage of the surrounding nations demanded far more and were far less merciful than the laws that Israel were receiving. There's a law that's similar to this one that the Babylonians would have upheld and when it came to theft of livestock, the, the law read like this. If anyone steals livestock, cattle, sheep, donkey, pig, or goat, 
If it belongs to a god or to the court, the thief shall pay 30 times its value. If they belong to a freedman of the king, he shall pay 10 times its value. If the thief has nothing with which to pay, he shall be put to death. So now when you look at Israel's law, you're thinking to yourself, actually, I think I'd rather live in Israel. <laughs> because who has 10 oxen to replace one? No one. That's the point. God's law is merciful when it comes to the surrounding nations around Israel. So why not adopt common laws? Why be so merciful? You know, one of the thoughts I had is if I was an Israelite and I was receiving this law and I'm thinking like, well, it's the death penalty for them and we're only going to have to do fourfold restoration. Won't the other nations think we're weak? Won't they look down on us? Why is God enacting such mercy? Because God called Israel out to be a holy nation. Holy being set apart for a purpose. They're supposed to be different from those around them. They're supposed to look different, but not just for difference's sake, but to communicate something about Israel's God. These laws in Israel itself was supposed to reflect God's character, that he is a God of justice, so he is going to make things right, but he's also a God of mercy. He's not going to be so heavy-handed that the law of restitution would leave everybody dead, right? And we're going to explore this kind of contrasting the merciful laws of the Old Testament to the ancient Near Eastern laws around Israel over the next couple of weeks. But even at this moment, we have a bit of application for us as believers, for us as a church. So the reason that God called Israel out to be different from the other nations is very similar to why God has called you to this body of believers, to the universal church, by faith. This is why we are to be in the world, but not of it. This is why God has given Christians a different way to live. We're supposed to be a peculiar people, but not for peculiarity's sake, for the sake of communicating to the world what God is like. We should never be a true fit, agreeing with 100% any worldly ideology or politic or movement. We should always be too strict for some, but too merciful for others. We should be quick to confess and slow to cancel. We should question moral license, and we should oppose immoral injustice, because we aren't people of the world. We're people of God in the world. And that distinction makes a huge difference. Morality and mercy in a culture that recognizes neither is a radically brilliant beacon of hope. And that's what we're supposed to be. One of the reasons why we're supposed to be different is so that when people look at us, they see Jesus. When they look at us, they see the Spirit. They see the Father. They see something different. And so we see seed forms of this in Israel in their laws. When other nations look at Israel, to be honest, we're a little bit jealous because it seems like your God is more merciful than ours. And I don't want to live with Marduk anymore. I want Yahweh, okay? That's the same thing that the church should be doing. People look around at their so-called gods and their culture and they're exhausted and they look at us and they see holiness and grace. They should say, I'm tired of the world. I want what has gotten you. 
I want what has retrieved you. What, what is it? What is different about you? Insert gospel. Verses uh, two through four. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, there's no conviction of murder. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, whoever killed him is uh, guilty of murder. He shall surely pay the murderer. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft, that being the thief. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. So this is a little confusing of a law, um, but essentially what it's saying is God wants you to be just in your punishment. And there, there, there isn't going to be like a one-size-fits-all for these kinds of scenarios. For example, if you get caught in the act at night and you're attacked, you're guilty, or your, your killer is not guilty of murder because it's at night, it's likely in self-defense. But if you get caught in the act of theft during the day and you're attacked, then your murderer is now guilty. Why? Because if it's at night, it's likely in self-defense, but if it's in the day, then there's a potential that your killer had a premeditated motivation here, that he didn't want to take you to the court, he wanted retribution his way right now. So what this is telling us is uh, that God doesn't just care about laws of restitution, but he cares about how they're executed. And that he cares about something that we're super familiar with and we totally ripped off from the Old Testament that you are innocent until proven guilty. So like, this is crazy when you think about it, 21st century Western society, but the foundation of our sense of justice in this country is built here. That concept of innocence until proven guilty is essentially foreign throughout history. And here we have it in its fledgling form. Verse uh, five through six, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field. Not one for one, not go out and get what you were just gonna feed to the oxen in winter anyway, but the best. That's an important detail. And in his own vineyard, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain in the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make restitution. In other words, God's saying, hey, if they graze, you pay. You can't destroy your neighbor's field for a free lunch for your livestock. In fact, if that happens, you've got to take from what's the best of yours to replace it. Even if, and think about this law, your oxen were not going for the best. They were going for what they were used to, the worst in your neighbor's field. Well, you've got to place your consumed worst, your neighbor's consumed worst for your best. So God cares about restitution and he cares about doing it in a quality manner. He wants to make things right. He wants to make things whole. God cares about making things right fully, even if it's accidentally your fault. Now, at this point, we, we do need to pause for another moment and ask this, I want to ask this question, he says it's fascinating to me. Uh, have you noticed that um, these laws are categorizing injustices into one of three categories? Every single injustice we've seen so far and every single injustice we're going to see can be categorized into one of three categories. Category one, theft. Category two, death. 
And category three, destruction. In other words, property or belongings are being stolen, killed, or destroyed. Theft of livestock, money we'll see next, or goods. Death of livestock in open pits, like mine in the backyard and the ox. Animal violence, destruction of property, fire in the grain fields and in the vineyard. Do you notice that? What Israel is learning is that God does not just intolerate justice. He intolerates injustice that brings theft, death, and destruction in specific. He does not like that at all. And this is actually up front. When you think about laws that we've received so far, we've seen God's holiness, we've seen the atonement, we've seen laws of ownership, and now we're getting the laws of injustice. And what does God hate? He hates that which kills, steals, and destroys. Sound familiar? Put that in your back pocket. It'll be important to us later. Verses 7 through 9. If a man gives to his neighbor money and goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. Again, just a side note. Ancient Near Eastern laws in Babylon would have called for capital punishment for any robbery. And yet here, God calls for restitution in the life of the thief so that he can have a chance to repent and become part of the community again. Verse 8, if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep or a cloak or any kind of lost thing, for which one says, this is it. In other words, hey, that's mine. He stole that from me. The case of both parties shall come before God, and the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. In other words, if you're tasked with keeping something safe, but it's stolen, then the thief if he is caught, must pay it back. Again, unlike other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the thief gets to live. But in the absence of the thief, what do you do there? To make sure that you're not lying about there even being a thief to begin with. To say, uh, to say if your neighbor came over, is like, hey, can, can, can I keep my PlayStation 5 with you for safekeeping? You're like, okay. I'll make sure it stays super safe. And then they come back from the vacation, you're like, sorry, the PS5's gone, there was a thief. And they're like, you got it low-key buried in your bed, right? God says, well, what do we do in that case when there is no thief? It was a made-up story. Well, in that case, you let God sort it out. You bring them before God, and as we'll see throughout the Torah, that's kind of a system of judges to discern. But there's an important phrase for us here that kind of encapsulates what we've been learning so far. For every breach of trust, the one whom God condemns must pay. If, if you had to like consolidate kind of what's happening with these laws, kind of backing up out of the details, for every breach of trust, the one whom God condemns must pay. That's what Israel is learning. Continuing in verses uh, 10 through 13. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between both to see whether or not he has put his hand on his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. For, uh, I'm sorry, if it is torn by beasts, let him bring the evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. In other words, if you're loaning, you're liable. Even 
if it's not quite clear who's at fault for damages, which means that God makes things right even when it's difficult to tell what's going on. Not being able to know the full story for God is not sufficient. There might be a moment where you have to step forward even though you're for sure it's not your fault, take ownership and make things right. That's the ideal. God wants things made right even if there's gray and we're not quite sure what went wrong to begin with. Doesn't matter. Here's the ideal. Make things right. Fair and just restitution is always the ideal and they should always be strived for. That's what Israel's learning. Verses uh, 14 through 15. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and if it is injured and dies, or injured or dies, and the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. In other words, don't abuse the principles of making things right. Which means that God makes things right in a righteous way. He's not a corrupt judge who's willing to bend the law, bend the rules, or look the other way. He wants to make sure that when he makes things right and when Israel makes things right, they're doing it by the book. Okay, let's summarize so far. These laws are about restitution. These laws are about divine justice. These laws tell us something about the character of God. God cares about making things right in the fullest sense, even if it's not our fault or they were unintentional or there was accidents. Because he is a God of justice and equality under his law. And that if I had to capture the entire passage that we're reading today in one phrase, this would be it. That for every breach of trust, the one whom God condemns must pay. And to add to this, when something is stolen or killed or destroyed, the guilty party shall make full restitution because for every breach of trust, the one whom God condemns must pay. This is the fabric with which the Old Testament justice is sewn together. Do justly. Strive for equality. Strive for mercy. Justly pay back what you owe, but only after it's determined that you were in the wrong. And really, that's a good virtue for us to hold today, isn't it? If the whole of the law can be summarized like this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor in, as yourself, then isn't making things right with your neighbor loving them selflessly, even when you know it's not your fault, and especially when you go above and beyond what is owed to make things right, like going fourfold? See, in a world where blame shifting is the norm and responsibility bearing is an exception, the Old Testament laws of rest, the restitution actually seem a bit progressive, don't they? I don't mean progressive in a political sense. I mean progressing us towards something great, something greater. Uh, our, suffer, or our culture suffers from an inability of taking ownership and taking responsibility and being merciful. And here, supposedly, some Bronze Age goat herders have a better idea of what it takes to make a society work well than supposedly our post-enlightened, post-modern, everybody-is-their-own-king culture is today. I just think it's a little bit interesting. <laughs> We're not progressive in a political sense, but God is using these laws to progress Israel forward 
in anticipation of God's mercy and justice incarnate coming in the form of his son. A true progression towards something great. Not merely equality under divine law, but bountiful mercy in making things right. A, a sense of ownership in wrongs we commit and an equal dedication to correcting those wrongs. The world doesn't want to do that because it takes humility and meekness. And we think of humility and meekness as weakness. But really, humility and meekness are signs of true strength and perseverance. But here's the deal. We've been struggling with this since the beginning. Uh, it's not just that our culture today can't stop blaming other people. And it's not just that Israel, once they've gotten this law, are, are going to be on the straight and narrow and please God. We know that's not the case. We've been struggling with blaming other people since day seven, thinking of the Garden of Eden, since the fall. I don't know if it happened on day seven. I don't think it did. What was Adam's response in the garden to God after he sinned? God, it's on me. Is that what he said? Nope. We have his words recorded exactly. The woman that you gave me, she told me to eat and I did it. <laughs> right? So where are his fingers pointing? To his only neighbor, who happens to be his wife, by the way, and to his only God. None of them pointing to himself. Adam blames his neighbor and blames his God. By the way, Adam means humanity. So what is Genesis trying to communicate? Our default position in sin is to place blame on other people, to refuse to take responsibility, to say it's always somebody else's fault. And if it's not their fault, I'm going to find it. Show me the man, show me the woman, I'm going to find the excuse, right? We spend more energy <laughs> trying to figure out how to blame people and come up with crazy lies like, well, you gave them to me, than to just speak the obvious and say, yeah, I'm at fault. I'm to blame here. No wonder Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, in other words, love themselves. He who loves himself loves his wife. So the question we can ask ourselves when we're looking at these laws is uh, who or what are you blaming to avoid being at fault? Who or what have you avoided or who or what have you blamed in the past to avoid being at fault that's still affecting you in the present? Who or what are you blaming right now that's preventing you from reconciliation with a neighbor, with a loved one, with somebody in your family, a friend? More importantly, who are you blaming that's preventing you having a relationship with your creator. How can you begin to turn your hands inward on yourself, to rightly take ownership, to confess to God, I want things made right? You see, God cares about making things right, even if it's not our fault, or it was unintentional, or it was an accidental thing, because he is a God of justice and equality and mercy, according to his own definitions. And this law of restitution taught Israel that for every breach of trust, the one whom God condemns must pay. In other words, if God finds you at fault, then you must pay even up to four times over. So let's ask this question. Did Israel do this well? Mm -mm. 
I guarantee you there were some dead donkeys in some pits. And I guarantee you the owners of the pit said, I swear that was not there last night. You want to know how I know? Because we're about to watch Aaron pump a bunch of gold into a furnace and then supposedly out pops an idol. I don't know. And these people, Moses, you know them. They're terrible to be around, right? So Israel is not going to follow these laws very well at all. And really, should we be surprised? Because Israel, like us, are descendants of the one who can't take ownership of sin himself. They're not any different. The only difference between them at this time period is that they have a mirror called the law reflecting their own depravity. And the rest of the nations are left to their own depravity. That's the thing that's distinguishing them. So just because they have the law doesn't mean they're going to follow it. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you know they didn't. They did not pay back fourfold for what they owed. Sometimes they did, sure, but they didn't do it all the time. But let's fast forward into the future, a few centuries into Israel's story. Well, really, more than a few centuries later. God decides to do something about sin. He wants to make things right, and so he sends his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem Israel. And one of those episodes in his redemption happens to follow tax collector named Zacchaeus. You find the story at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jerusalem, or Jericho. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector and was rich. Okay, so if you're in the first century and you read that, he was a tax collector and he was rich, you would say, no duh, he was rich. Why? Because a tax collector back then is not like a tax collector today. How many of you like the IRS? That's right, none of us do. But what if I told you that the United States government didn't care about how much the IRS collected, they just cared that they had a set sum at the end of the year, which leaves open the door, the possibility of the IRS taking more than what the government actually expects. This is exactly what was happening with Rome. Rome, through a series of people, told this guy named Zacchaeus, a tax collector, hey, we want from you at the end of the year $30,000. We don't care how you collect it. We don't care how much you collect. We want $30,000. So what would Zacchaeus do? He would go to houses that actually owe $1,000 and say, Rome demands of you $1,200. He would take the $1,200, keep the $200 for himself. Fast forward three years, my man's got a really nice yacht in the Mediterranean. Add to this that Zacchaeus was a Jew which means that he was aiding and pumping money into the very oppressive system of Gentile governance that was keeping Israel down. Israel don't like tax collectors, especially ones of their own tribe. Verse three, and he was seeking, being Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because of his small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I want to emphasize something here. It's not that Jesus didn't have enough Hilton points, that he didn't have a hotel to stay in. It's not that people didn't want Jesus to stay at his house. He's not begging Zacchaeus. He's inviting Zacchaeus to a relationship, to an experience with him. I want you to have me in your home tonight. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they, being the Jews, saw it, they all grumbled. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of Zacchaeus, who is a sinner. 
Question, is Zacchaeus a sinner? Yes. So it's not that they're wrong. There's nothing wrong with that sentence, but the attitude of their heart is what's condemning them at this moment. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded, if I have stolen, if I have been a theft of anyone, of anything, I restore it fourfold. Why does that sound familiar? Because Exodus 22, verse 1 says, If you steal livestock, you must restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus is so moved by Jesus that he's willingly choosing to make things right. Notice an important difference there. In the Old Testament, the principle of restitution is to pay back what you owe and only after it's determined that you were in the wrong. After a person had come before God, after the one whom God condemns, then you make it right. Does Zacchaeus wait until he gets caught? Nope. Does he come before God condemned? Well, he does. Or does he rush to God without fear of the condemnation, jumping ahead of it, getting forward before it, and in his joy voluntarily pledge to make things right? You see the difference? The Old Testament law says, justly pay back what you owe and only after it's determined that you're in the wrong. But the gospels tell us something different. The gospels say generously give more than what you owe and don't wait until it's determined that you're in the wrong. Why is this? What's changed? Only one thing. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. That's what's changed. Today, salvation has come to this house since he, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While in the Old Testament, Israel stood far off to receive the law of equity from God. In the Gospels, God comes to Israel in the form of his son to deliver a new law of grace through his atoning sacrifice. God has come to seek and to save what is lost. And that grace, if sensed even for a moment, electrified Zacchaeus' soul in such a way that he went above and beyond what the law required him to do. He did not wait for his trial. He didn't wait to be caught. He proclaimed openly to all, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And in doing so, by the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus, Zacchaeus is, perhaps unwittingly, I doubt that he understood what he was doing. He's upending the kingdom of darkness. He's upending and muting and, and dousing the power of sin. How could he be doing that? Well, remind me, what are the three ways that the law of restitution identified or categorized sin? Stolen livestock, money or goods, killed livestock in open pits and animal violence, and destroyed property by grazing or fire. And what does Jesus say the enemy has come to do to his creation? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't tell me Israel in these passages are not being prepped to hear that. They are. And don't tell me the world is not being prepped to receive him. We are. You see, the enemy has no other interest in you than your destruction. He doesn't love you. He hates you because you bear the image and likeness of God. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal you. He wants to destroy you. 
And the thing is, every single person in this world, regardless if they're a believer or not, regardless of even if they believe in God or not, sense that kind of existential anxiety during their life. Some more than others. But because we all bear the image and likeness of God, and because there is a very real enemy who has come to steal, kill, and destroy us, whether we recognize it, whether we admit it or not, we sense that there's a problem. And so what do we do? We look for ways out. We look for messiahs. But the messiahs we look for in this world are too powerless. And worse, some of them actually turn out to be the enemy in disguise. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? The enemy loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. The world looks to earthly saviors, or saviors to nourish them and, and to give them life and, and to give them flourishing to fullness. But it's only too late when they realize that their savior is actually an enemy. We see this repeat over and over in history as if we cannot learn our lesson from the last time. We're seeing it repeat even before our eyes right now. Dictators of the world who unashamedly annex territory, that's theft, who ruthlessly eradicate life of women and children, that's killing, and who ravage towns and level cities, that's destroying. That's the work of the enemy, plain and simple. And this plays out in our life spiritually too. Think about all the false messiahs and false prophets of the world who steal from God, who steal, who lead souls to spiritual death, who put them on a trajectory towards eternal destruction. Jesus says, enough is enough, and I promise you something different. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And in saying so, and in promising so, Jesus is insisting that the only way to true generosity, to true life, to true abundant life, building up, flourishing, is through him. That the only way to truly and fully make things right is through him. How? If you continue into verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His death is how he does this. You see, for every breach of trust, the one whom God condemns must pay. Here's the bad news. Every single person that hears my words now has breached God's trust, and includes myself. For all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. We have broken our promises. We've broken our covenants with him. We have sinned against his holiness. We owe God and we owe our neighbors. We are in debt and must make things right. And because God is all about making things right, he demands that we make things right, not only with our neighbors, but also with him. And you might be able to begin to make things right with your neighbor, but you can never make things right by yourself with God. You see, at times... We sin by purposely wronging God, accidentally wronging God, unknowingly wronging God. You've committed sins in your life that you have no clue that God was offended by. So even if you think, if God gives me a little bit of forgiveness for the sins I did willingly against him in the past, I'm going to be good for the rest of my life. No. And just like in the laws of Exodus, the thief purposely wronged his neighbor or you know, people negligently or accidentally wrong their neighbor or ignorantly, unknowingly wrong their neighbor. It doesn't matter if you purposely did it against God or accidentally did it against God or unknowingly sinned against God. You still incur a debt nonetheless and you must make things right. And Pharaoh rightly pointed this out. Of all people, and very early on in the Bible, he rightly pointed out or saw or discerned this connection between the mode of this payment, there has to be some kind of death. 
I have sinned against the Lord your God and sinned against you, he said to Moses. I've sinned against God and neighbor. This is a very profound and fundamental thing Pharaoh is saying. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. He sees the connection between breaking God's law, violating, making things wrong between neighbor and God, and death. And he's right to see that because the law condemns us to death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, Paul says. So death is ultimately how God makes things right with sin. Either our death or the death of his son. Those are your only two options. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How? Because God pays for our debt for us with his own righteousness. As precisely as the gospel says he did. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The good shepherd has laid his life down for you. The good shepherd has come to seek and save you, the lost. The good shepherd has laid his life down so that he can make things right between you and God, even when it wasn't his fault that you got into that situation to begin with. Because there's only one person in the entirety of history who can say, I have never purposefully offended God. I have never accidentally offended God. I have never unknowingly offended God, and that is Christ. So he is the only one who can make things right, the only candidate, and he does. And he does so even when we don't deserve it. And you who are dead in your trespasses, Paul says, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, God is not a corrupt judge who's going to make a rule, and then when he doesn't like how things are going, change it. He makes a rule, he sticks to it. And if that rule is, if you violate the law, you deserve death, there is no wiggle room. There has to be death for the sin you committed. And Christ stands up in the courtroom and says, yeah, he's guilty, but I am willing to take his punishment for him. And so you walk out scot-free, not because the law has not paid for your sin, but because Christ has paid for your sin in full, so that you can receive graciously what is not owed to you. Selfless love that makes all things right. Not out of an obligation, but out of the motivation of love. Because Christ paid with his own blood to make things right with us. Not fourfold, not even fiftyfold, an infinite fold. That's where we see the gospel in such a seemingly obscure Old Testament text. God is in the business of making things right when sin steals, kills, and destroys. And because he loves us so much, he's not going to let us try to do it on our own, because we can't. Instead, he sent his son to make things right, not by reminding or demanding from us what is owed, that's exactly what the law was for, but by declaring us right through his own righteousness, by canceling our debt, through his death on the cross and by declaring victory over theft, death, and destruction in his glorious resurrection three days later. 
Here's the only thing you need to do to make that effective in your life is believe it's true. That's it. Believe it's true. Believe that Jesus is your good shepherd who laid his life down for you and he will, not might, he will give you life in abundance. And you will no longer be subject to the theft, death, and destruction that the enemy seeks for you. Now and forever. But here's the thing. The cross is not merely a gateway for your personal new life. But it's also a life where you are selflessly reoriented away from your inner self to your outward self towards your neighbor. Filled with the Holy Spirit to yearn to see restoration and justice in terms that God alone defines. And let me be very clear about that point. Um, equality, justice, these are buzzwords in our culture today, but they do not get to define what those mean. God has told us what equality and justice means because true equality and true justice flow from his holiness and his goodness and his love. And all other equality and all other justice are downstream from him. So when I say equality, when I say justice, what I'm talking about is how does God describe those things? That's what we should rush towards. And if we see glimpses of that, we see glimmers of that, we hear echoes of that in this world, praise God but we should always be looking toward him. What is right? What is true? What is good? What is beautiful in this moment? What is truth here? And empowered by his grace alone, do we get to participate in bringing his justice, his restoration in this world? You see, the Holy Spirit, when he indwells you, he acts in you to bring about this infinite fold growth of holiness. The Bible calls it sanctification. You embark on a lifetime of being conformed more to the image of Christ. And as he's pouring his love and holiness into your renewed hearts, we begin to love the things that God loves. We begin to love the way that God loves and the things that God loves and the way that God loves is that God loves justice and he loves making things right through mercy and grace. And so we begin to want those things too. We begin to act in those ways as well, so that we love the ones whom God loves, our neighbors, our image bearers of God, potential siblings in Christ. You see, true love relates to others in such a deep way that we want for them what we have been given ourselves, so that we, who have been made right with God by Christ, get to make things right in the world with Christ. We get to cooperate and participate with him. In other words, we shouldn't primarily strive to make things right when we are in the wrong, although we should. Instead, we should always posture ourselves in such a way that we continually self-give over to the one to whom we owe all. And we allow him to guide us in his Holy Spirit in his quest to make all things right while he's making all things new by his power to his glory. Amen. Like that's the seed that we see planted in the heart of Israel here in this law. And it is watered by God's mercy throughout their history in blossoms in the death and resurrection of the Son. And now we as the church get to eat that fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit and cooperate and participate and do the things that he's doing and making things right as he makes all things new. That should be exciting to us. So let's be a church who rightly desires to be different from worldly concepts of justice. Let's be the called out ones, a different, a peculiar people 
who don't only demand true justice and show true mercy, but also who recognize that we can't do it without the love and grace of God and Jesus Christ. Let's habitually repent from stealing and killing and destroying, to constantly repent even from trying to fix it ourselves. Let's turn to Christ, who gives himself over to make things right between us and God, infinite fold. Because only then can we be a people whom God has called to be, a people of justice and mercy and grace, God's holy nation in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that the Spirit inspired it to show us unfolding over time your character and your works, who you are, what you do, what you desire. Father, we thank you that you are a God of love and holiness and that we see those two collide with sinners in mercy and justice and grace. Father, we just stand back amazed at how you would reconcile pure holiness in the face of sin, and yet you do. You found a way through your son, the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we repent from the times that uh, we have demanded justice, being unjust ourselves. We repent from the times that we tried to make it right on our own as we see the world as fumbling for definitions of justice and equality and trying to make it right by themselves. We confess that we can't do that. We need you. Father, we thank you so much that your son is our good shepherd who has come to give us life in abundance and to destroy forever the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That the thief has an expiration date and your resurrection proves it. So Father, let us be the kind of people who are indwelled with your spirit, who love to make things right between us and you as the one who has made things right between us and you, lives richly in our hearts, forms our minds, and informs our actions. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things as a church.